Um, uh, we're going to be reading uh, from 1, 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 1 to 12, and you can find that in the Pew Bibles, or, well, I mean in the Gathering Bibles, um, on page 857. So let's have a look at the hope that we have, the sure hope. 1 Peter, chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice. Though for a little, now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief of all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect exiles scattered. Done. Finished. If we understand those three words, elect, exiles, scattered, then we understand today's sermon. There's not really much more that needs to be said. I could just sit down right now. now I'm not going to, but you already knew that, didn't you? In fact, if you understand those three words... You understand this whole series that we're doing, you'll understand the whole of Peter's letter. And do you remember Peter? He was one of the 12 apostles of Jesus, which means he's one of the people that Jesus chose to speak on his behalf and take his message to the world. And he writes this letter probably around AD 62. And all these um, places that he mentions there, you can see them on a map up here, they're all regions in Asia Minor, what we'd call Turkey today. So what that means is that this letter was written to be read by lots of people in lots of different churches. And Peter sees all these different people in all these different churches in the same light. 
They're all God's elect exiles scattered. In other words, this is how Peter sees all Christians. And because Peter is an apostle who speaks God's word to us, this is how God sees us too. If you're a Christian, is this how you think of yourself? An elect exile scattered. Now, when it comes to being elect, I reckon we probably do think of ourselves that way. God has chosen us. And we're not being arrogant thinking that, because he hasn't chosen us because we're better than other people. He hasn't even chosen us because we're different to other people at all. It's actually a humbling thing to think that you're chosen by God. Because what you're saying is, unless God chooses me, I have no hope of ever belonging to him. Because there's nothing in me that deserves it, and there's no way that I could ever earn it. So I'm guessing if you're a Christian, you're okay with being God's elect. But what about being an exile? Do you see yourself as being chosen to be an exile? This description of a Christian, it sounds a bit strange, doesn't it? I mean, what are we exiled from? God? Israel? This world? It doesn't seem like a very positive thing. It sounds like a punishment. In the Old Testament, the Israelites went into exile because they rejected God. Now, the new NIV says exile at this point. The old NIV says strangers. Neither sound appealing. Both seem confusing. In chapter 2, Peter uses the same word again. Look at verse 9 where we'll pick it up. Peter's talking about people who tragically reject Jesus. But then he says to the people he's writing to, but you are a chosen people. They're God's elect. And then he explains a bit more about what God's chosen them to be. They are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And then verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. And then in verse 11, we see our word again. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires. So if we bring these ideas together, we see what Peter means by calling us exiles. He means that we're part of a holy nation, the people of God. And so we're foreigners. Foreigner is is what we should be thinking when we read exile here, because that's what Peter has in mind. In another translation, instead of exile... They say temporary resident. Temporary resident. That hits the nail perfectly on the head. Are you a Christian? Well, then you're a temporary resident. You're chosen by God to belong to his kingdom. And right now, you're living away from your homeland. Now, even if you were born here in the northeast, even if you've never left the northeast, you never crossed Main North Road, never been south of the city. Still, this isn't your homeland. You're scattered among people that, well, they don't belong to your homeland. In a way, you're an expat. Now, when I think of expats, for some reason, I think of um, a bunch of Australians in some city overseas that always stick together, never mingle with the locals, think they're superior, and they party and give Australia a bad name. Who here's been an expat? 
probably should have asked that question before I gave that description of expats. Who here is currently an expat? There's a few. Well, just for the record, I don't think of you that way. (laughs) Now, I don't know if there's any truth in what I just said about Australian expats or if I was slandering them. But that is definitely not the kind of expat that God has chosen his people to be. We might be expats, but we're scattered. For now, we're inseparably mixed with those around us. And importantly, we're not called in this letter to separate ourselves from those around us, except in one way only. And that's to make sure we live good lives as God defines it. Now we'll see this over the next few weeks again and again. We're called to live lives that love the people around us, to live lives that praise God and that bring praise to God, even from people who hate him. Now, even though 2,000 years almost have gone by since Peter wrote this letter, it's still as relevant now as it ever was. And God's word's like that, of course. If we're Christians, we're still elect temporary residents. We might not be scattered in Asia Minor, Asia Minor but we're scattered in Adelaide. In other words, 1 Peter, it's like a handbook for us telling us how to live as citizens of heaven here and now, how to be expats away from our homeland. And the first thing that Peter says in this letter is that expats of God's kingdom long for a future when they will see their homeland. I uh, quite liked watching Men vs. Wild when it was on TV with Bear Grylls. And the more episodes you watch, the more you sort of notice a trend in his tactics Like one tactic that he seems to do just about every week is that when he's in the thick of some jungle or or swamp or desert, he climbs up to a ridgetop and he kind of looks out over the mess of the swamp, the jungle, to the finish line. And it's from there that he, he plots his course forward. Well, in a way, that's what Peter's doing here for the people that he's writing to. For them, they're in the the mess of persecution. And suffering. And out of that mess, he, he takes them up to the ridgetop and he shows them yet again the finish line, the homeland in the distance. Now, we did that last week, didn't we? When we looked at where this world is he- heading. But Revelation is not the only place where we see where our world's heading. We see it in every book of the New Testament. So today, we're, we're going to follow Peter up to the ridge and look out yet again to where we're headed. But because we did it last week, we're not going to spend much time there. What Peter wants us to see is that it's worth getting to the finish line. Our homeland's awesome. Have a look at verse 3. He writes, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Citizens of heaven have a living hope. Now, like I said with the kids, most of the time when we use hope, we use it different to the Bible. You know, I hope it won't rain tomorrow means I really wish it doesn't rain tomorrow. Whereas hope in the Bible doesn't mean wishful thinking at all. It means something that's certain, but it's still in the future. We read what our living hope is in verse 4. Our certain future 
is an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. That's our finish line. That's our certain hope. It's an inheritance. Now, when I think of my inheritance, I'm not particularly excited. Uh, My dad lives in a house that was built in the late 70s that's pretty run down. It's never been renovated. He would disagree, but what he does is not renovation. And I'm one of six kids. Not much divided by six equals even less. So I'm not putting too much hope in my inheritance. But did you notice how this inheritance is described? It'll never perish, spoil or fade. Pretty much nothing else on this earth can be described with those words. A friend of mine is a minister in Christchurch in New Zealand, and he was telling me about the earthquakes in Christchurch and how, in an instant, things that people took for granted, that they treated like they were never going to perish, were suddenly just lying in pieces all around them. It just sounded terrible, including, in fact, their church building. Now, I know that I take my house and my car and my health and my family's health for granted a lot of the time. But when your house topples or your job comes to an unexpected end, when you lose loved ones or when you're diagnosed with cancer, you see just how valuable is an inheritance that's never going to perish, spoil or fade. Peter, as he's writing to suffering Christians, he really wants them to see just how valuable the finish line is. So he goes on in verse 5 to tell them that they are those who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, so far already, he's talked about the same finish line in three different ways. A living hope, an inheritance, and here it's salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. Jump down to verse 7, he talks about it again. He talks about when Jesus will be revealed. Peter really wants them to focus on the finish line. He's taken us up to the ridgetop and he's saying, that's where you're headed. That's your homeland. That's what you've got to be living for. And this brings us to the next thing that Peter has to say to us. Before Jesus returns, expats of God's kingdom face tough times that prove their true colours. And normally what Bear Grylls does after checking out the finish line is he you know, slides down the mountainside, back into the mess of the swamp, and he ploughs on you know, through the jungle. And in many ways, that's what we've got to do too. But with Bear Grylls, there's always the chance that he's not going to make it. You know, there's always the chance he's going to break a leg or get lost or eat something that's finally going to kill him. Is that the same with us here? You know, is Peter showing us the goal from the ridgeline, giving us a bit, of a, pep talk, bit, a bit of a pep talk and then saying, well, good luck, off you go, watch out for snakes? The difference for us is that our destination is certain. In verse 3, we have a living hope, not through anything we do, through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. In verse 4, We can be certain we'll receive our inheritance, again, not because of ourselves, but because it's kept in heaven for you. And then in verse 5, we read that through faith, we are shielded by God's power. The word used for shielded is the idea that we're kept under guard. 
You know, in other words, we're guarded from outside threats and we're kept captive at the same time. As someone put it, they said it, it's like this. We're protected from attack and we're kept from escaping. See, making it to the end is, is not about our strength or our ability or our performance. It's about God's power. And yet we read it's through our faith that we're shielded. What does that mean? Well, it means that God's power does not work separate to our faith. God chooses to exercise his power by energizing and sustaining our faith. So are you continuing to have faith in Jesus? Well, if so, it's because God is guarding you. And God will guard those who are his, the people he knows, the people he's chosen, till the finish line, no matter what. Now just stop for a second and think about that. God's power guards us to the finish line. It's an amazing, amazingly comforting thought, isn't it? And yet, Peter makes it crystal clear that God's power even though it's going to guard us to the finish line, it's not going to pull us out from the mess of the swamp. In fact, Peter tells us the opposite. He says we may well have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. But different to what we might expect, trials don't threaten our chances of reaching the finish line because trials don't destroy our faith. Trials prove our faith to be genuine. Look at verse 6. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. As we read through this letter, we see that some of the trials that they faced included persecution for being Christians. And though they felt great happiness about what was to come, some of them at the same time were deeply sad because of the trials. Peter doesn't tell them to pretend that the trials don't hurt. Instead, he acknowledges that the trials do hurt. His point, rather, is that the trials can't hurt their faith because true faith is proven through trials. I've seen this in my limited experience in life. Maybe you have too. When people face trials, they either give it all up because they never really believed or their faith is strengthened. My kids used to have these plastic swords that looked rather lifelike. But if I had got one of those plastic swords and put it in the fire... It would have melted in an instant, you know, with that poisonous black smoke that goes everywhere. But what happens if you get a real sword, a real metal sword, and you put it in the flame? It doesn't melt. It gets hot. But through the process, the metal gets tempered and hardened and proven to be true. Real faith, when it meets the flame, whatever the trial might be, is strengthened. Because it knows where to go. Where does it go? It goes to God, to his power, to the coming salvation, to the living hope of our inheritance. 
But there's something else that happens when real faith is tested. Did you see it in verse 7? Peter writes, These trials have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Do you see what happens? Our faith tested by trials brings praise, glory and honour when Jesus comes back. Is this our praise and glory or God's? Well, it doesn't actually say here. And if you look at the rest of, of the letter to try and answer that question, you'll actually see examples of both. What we do brings glory to God on the last day. That's chapter 2, verse 12. But also on the last day, God glorifies us for what we've done. It's chapter 5, verse 4. See, both are true at the same time. The beautiful thing is that trials aren't meaningless. As hard and as sad as they can be, they're not pointless. As we cling to Jesus through them, God is glorified and God is pleased with us. Peter says there are all kinds of trials. It's not just persecution that tests our faith. There are many things that test us. Life throws up all sorts of challenges that either show our faith to be genuine or fake, like sickness, like suffering. Last time I preached on this passage, the church I was at was going through a massive trial. Last time I preached on this passage, it was just one week after it had been announced to the church that their minister of 13 years had been unfaithful in his marriage and had resigned. Do you know what I saw over the next couple of years? Pretty much all the people in that church suffered. It was an incredibly testing time for their faith. But almost all of them kept looking to Jesus. And through that difficult time, not only was their faith proven to be true, but it brought glory to God as well. Now, as I was thinking about it this week, I think that we as a church are going through a kind of trial. It's a different, way, way different to the one that my old church went through. But we're going through something that's going to test our faith. Church planting. Now, some trials are harder than others, but I reckon church planting, even though it's a really good thing to do, it's going to test our faith, isn't it? Aren't we going to be tempted to do this in our own strength rather than to trust in God's power? We're going to be tempted to be proud if things go really well. And, you know, the best of both worlds, we're going to be tempted to blame God if things go terribly. I mean, I think I've been guilty of all three already. Church planting might be a great thing to do, but it's going to test our faith. And I'm praying that this trial is going to do two things for us. First, it's going to prove that our faith is genuine. And second, that it's going to bring glory to God. This week, as I was reading in verse 6 about trials, it made me think that my natural approach to difficult times is to think, how can I get away from this trial? Rather than how can I trust God through this and bring glory to him? Are you like that too? Because I was thinking if we're all like that, it's going to be a bit of a problem for us as we church plant. Now, can I be bold and ask just this once? Because I think it's worth asking. 
If you're not going to Trinity Grove, why have you held back? Have you asked yourself that question? Is it because it's too hard for you to go? It's going to be too difficult. It's going to be stretching. Now, all those things are probably true, but they're not good reasons to stay here at T&E. Because number one, like we're saying, God is powerful. He will shield you, not by removing you from hard things, but by keeping you safe through them. And number two, you belong to another kingdom to come. When we climb that ridge and we look out beyond the swampland to our homeland, it inspires us to get back in there again and get on with the job. We're expats. We want to live lives that bring God glory. And from what I can see, just by churning up at Trinity Grove week by week, even if that was all you did there, you're helping something come into being that's going to have an impact forever and bring God glory. Now, don't get me wrong. There are lots of good reasons to stay here at Tuni. To be honest, I barely even thought about going to Trinity Grove. I want there to be a T&E after March 6. Now, I'm not saying anything like that those who stay are less faithful. Hear what I'm saying. I'm saying that if the reason that we're not going is comfort, or because we don't want to face difficulties, we don't want to be tested, they're just not reasons that are worthy of expats of the kingdom of God. We trust God. We know his power. We can see in the distance from this ridgetop what's coming. And so through faith in him, we say, bring it on, come what may. Now, I'm going to finish in a couple of minutes. But it's really worth me saying that even though our homeland is in the distance, even though we long for a future day when we'll see Jesus face to face, despite that, he's not distanced from us now. Look at verse 8. Peter writes, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Is that how you feel about Jesus? Do you love him? Are you filled with a joy that you can barely even explain? That even in times of deep sadness in life, there's an even deeper, stranger joy and delight in God. Now, too often we focus on knowing about God and stop there. But do we love him? Are we filled with joy thinking about him? Now, love and joy, they express themselves in all sorts of valid ways. There's not just one way to love or one way to express joy. But can you freely say that in your own way you love Jesus and he fills you with joy? If you don't feel these things, you can't manufacture them. It's not possible. It won't last. Instead, you've got to go where verse 9 tells you to go. See, look at it. Peter says, you're filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of of your souls. Do you see where the love and the joy comes from? That even now we're receiving salvation. Peter says that this salvation was searched for by the prophets, even the angels long to look into it, and yet we are the ones who've had this salvation message clearly spoken to us in verse 12 by those who preached the gospel to you 
by the Holy Spirit from heaven. Genuine love, genuine joy, it flows from hearing and believing the gospel message that Jesus suffered for you and that he rose again for you so that you could be saved and have this living hope of an inheritance that's coming. This letter that Peter writes tells us that we're expats because in the end it's the gospel that tells us that we're expats. And as we'll see week by week, it's not smooth sailing. But God will shield us. And what he's got in store for us is worth waiting for. Today, if you're like looking at this and think, I want to be an expat, come and talk to me afterwards. We'd love for you to join us. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, you know our hearts and you know our minds. Lord, help us as we know this salvation that's announced in the gospel. Help our hearts to thrill with joy. Help us to love you deeply and truly. Lord, as we face trials, you also know our hearts and our minds and you know the way that we just want to run away from them. We ask, Lord, you would guard us by your power. Increase our faith so that even through trials, we can see them as a chance to bring you glory and praise. Lord, help us as we face church planting to see that it is a great thing to be a part of. Indeed, Lord, something to celebrate. And yet, Lord, at the same time, help us to be willing to face the hard times that it does bring and to bring you glory through it as you prove our faith in Jesus to be true. We pray this in his name. Amen.